Welcome to Season 4 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to another episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. It's my great pleasure today to introduce you to Professor Stephen Heppel, who is an English educator specialising in the use of ICT in education. He is Professor at Bournemouth University and also holds a number of other academic positions around the world. He is probably best known for his work Ultralab, where he worked on education projects such as Learning in the New Millennium, Schools Online, Development of Think.com and Talking Heads. Stephen is retained by a number of organisations to help with future policy and education, including the BBC, as an associate of KPMG, and is retained by the UK government in horizon scanning work to advise of future directions for educational policy. Stephen is also the executive chairman of LP+, who are currently developing a Chinese language learning community for 20 million Chinese school students in partnerships with China's Sun New Media Corporation. He's been described by Microsoft as Europe's leading online education expert and also the most influential academic of recent years in the fields of technology and education by the Department for Education in the UK. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Stephen Heppel, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. I really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Um, um, yeah, I'm a great fan of podcasts anyway. There's nothing like a, a nice gentle conversation to catch people's interest. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. Lots. Absolutely. Well, I'm incredibly grateful that you would uh, take the time. It's still, the, the podcast medium still amazes me that we can have a conversation across the globe and also somebody else on their commute uh, to work in Sydney or wherever they may be listening can, can also hear this conversation. So my hope is that there will be a lot of educators around the world that really get something out of our conversation today. Um, uh, quite possibly the most important question, uh, what is your coffee order when I can finally uh, buy your coffee? Well, um, I'm a bit obsessed by coffee. So um, yeah, by, by and large, uh, it's just a strong espresso or short black, I think. Fantastic. Have but uh, I really like the beans to be very dark roasted. But yeah. I see acidity down a little bit and um, yeah, I just, I'm actually just, I don't just like coffee, I need coffee. <laughs> Is it the first thing you do in the morning pretty much? Yeah, well, I live with my granddaughters, um, they're five and, and eight and the uh, first thing we do in the morning, they come and jump in the bed and I go off and I make myself the coffee and two hot milks for them and we sit and have a little sip and contemplate what the day's going to bring, you know, and um, what homework they should have finished and have to rush off and do. <laughs> and sounds, and uh, the way we do, and yeah, and I have one in front of me and right yeah, now too. Great. It sounds like <laughs> a lovely, uh, a lovely way to start the day with your grandkids and, and contemplating what the day uh, has to hold. Is that something that you have uh, always done or is it more recently because uh, of being uh, confined to your home with this current <laughs> pandemic or? No, they've, um, they, they, they both live with me almost for more. One of them, uh, from birth, the other one from she was just um, three years old, and she they all came with my daughter as well. So we all live in a big old house together. Fantastic, with, Fantastic. Um, with a 
garden and a, a slides and it's a very playful space actually. <laughs> lovely, <laughs> so, lovely. That, yeah, that's, it is lovely. In, in, in years. That sounds great. Um, Stephen, I was just wondering, uh, what's a book uh, that you ha have read either recently or um, or a while ago that has made you stop and reconsider things? Well, that's really, I mean, there's a longer answer to that than there should be really because, you know, when, when um, books started appearing electronically, I, I found that, you know, it's sort of filling up my phone with, uh, with, with books. And I found that phones, um, phones books tend to be rather like the music on my phone, things that I'm rather fond of from the past. And I like to just dip into and play a little bit, my own, a little bit of Brave New World from Huxley or a little bit yeah. of um, whatever, you know, and I, I just kind of read that paragraph or that chapter or that. I don't want to sample them, you know, where, and I tend to do that with music as well. Whereas with a book in my hand, you know, yeah. I, I, there's something about the patina of the book and uh, finding a way for one of my favorites for who two guys are all or in Australia, it's um, John Bertrand Born to Win book, you know, which is uh, just a great classic he wrote after one of America's Cup, you know, all those years ago. And um, I, I love, I love the, the whole um, theatre of the book, you know, the way it, the way it starts with catastrophe and then builds, builds yeah. the victory, you know. And you know, I can shut my eyes and put my hands in the fun where the pictures are, you know. So, you know, with physical books, uh, it's the physicality of them. I really. I really enjoy a lot, you know. So, but but, but any book that's moved me dramatically, I find it very hard to pick one because yeah. my life is so full of books. Fantastic. We have a library in the house. Great. And, um, yeah, that's all. Yes. Fantastic. And we we will get into obviously uh, your amazing work in education uh, in a moment. But do you uh, do you tend to read um, quite broadly and outside your field of expertise, or do you tend to try and stick um, uh, within that education sphere? That's a good question. I'm, I'm um, uh, aggressively polymathic, actually. And this sort of happened because um, as I went through, you know, um, school, I was, I was pretty good at school, you know, did all that. And uh, I kind of easily bored. So every sort of every couple of years, I changed track. You know, one minute I was on, you know, engineering and physics, and next minute I was doing metaphysical poetry and you know, <laughs> sort of leaping around, you know, to the despair of the teachers and the parents and everybody else. And when I, then when I went to university, picked, uh, and at the university, so I'm a great sailor. I love sailing with my thing. You know. So with the six universities I applied to were the top six in the university sailing league. And, <laughs> you know, I went to university to win the, the university league, which we did for two, two out of the three years, you know. But at the end of the first year, I um, they changed the schedule of, of course of, of lectures for the subject I'd chosen. They clashed with the sailing training, so just completely changed degree. You know that. And actually, I found myself in in as an undergraduate sitting in on other people's lectures more than my own. I was fascinated by you know oh, that's really interesting. I just go. Sit at the back, typical university, nobody knew who the hell anybody was in it. So I just go and sit there and kind of soak up, uh, you know, whatever it was. And I'm the same now, you know, probably probably reading more quantum computing at this point 
than anything else and probably wow. more into more into that but at the same time you know we're doing all this stuff on um, physical environments physicality yeah. and, you know so there's a big chunk of cognitive science and all this and yeah and of course we're doing a lot of work in, in um, sport elite sport performance so you know i can't help but read what the coaches think they know they never they never seem to know that but, you, know, <laughs> you have to read it, it sounds incredibly uh incredibly varied uh like uh, your uh, your career sounds incredibly varied just like your reading list um there seems to be a number of uh, really interesting uh, common threads um but also it is incredibly uh, broad and wide-ranging and i was just wondering uh, if somebody asks uh what do you do uh, how do you how do you answer that question <coughs> actually these days i usually um dodge it and just tell them something you know, I figure that covers it. I mean, for example, at the moment, we're, we've been asked by a, a very large health trust to work with them on reducing suicide rates with um, people in, um, in uh, you know, custodial um, um, mediation, you know, people have been, been locked up for yeah. whatever challenges they, they've got, you know, their suicide rates are very high. So we're looking really hard at all that. So, I'd probably just say that to somebody who may be interested, or I'd pick something else. You know, we're, yeah. we're doing a lot of work on outdoor learning at the moment. So I said, yeah. Yeah. If, we, if we were standing up on the beach, I'd say, well, we're doing a lot of stuff on outdoor learning. Yeah. You couldn't begin to say the totality of it. You'd be still standing there a day later, you know, it <laughs> would be, be impossible. So I'd, yeah. if you ask the granddaughters what I do, they'll say, he's a professor. And in their mind, that means I'm slightly mad, you know, I get bent stuff, you know. <laughs> I'm taking on aliens from around the around the galaxy because that's what professors do in their television lives. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's um it's really fascinating. Like I don't think my my children don't know what I do, and to be perfectly honest, I don't think they particularly mind um, as long as I'm there to to play with them and read them stories and 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 uh, help them build their imagination. To be honest, they couldn't care less what I do day to day because as soon as I come home, I'm I'm dad to them, and it's probably the same thing, I think, with your grandkids, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, that's exactly right. And, uh, and I have to tell you, having been a dad before, I was a granddad, but the, the granddad role is something to relish and to look forward to. It. So yeah. there's an absolute trip and joy. It really is yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is a real joy, and it moves, uh, moves incredibly fast. Um, um, Stephen, I was just wondering, uh, I'm a, a graduate from the University of Melbourne. Uh, what was your uh, time like at the University of Melbourne? And, and would you mind just maybe unpacking some of the work that you did uh, there? I've, um, that's just a really hard thing. I mean, I've been in so many institutions, you know, I mean, you know, that yeah. at the moment I'm based in um, UCJC in Madrid, you know, and of course they're all, they're all spectacularly different because, um, you know, working in Spain, you know, the, the insight is interesting, you know, um, Australian universities are very traditional Western in their models and they, you know, they have, you know, sort of regular things that people have to do, like write papers and have citations and, and all that kind of thing, you know, and they have an enormous number of meetings. Uh, you know, I think um, certainly when I was at, when I was at my first the big university, you know, probably spent half my time in meetings. I remember at a, a second university, I was in a meeting and they had the vice chancellor who'd thought there were too many meetings, you know, wrote to everybody and said, Can you just 
you know, can you just reappraise when you need to be in the meeting that you're in? You know, so I was in this meeting and they said, well, what, why, why do we meet? And nobody could remember, you know, but they said, well, it's, it's quite useful just to see everybody. So we'll carry on doing it, you know. So <laughs> universities are awash with, you know, the bureaucracy of managing everyday life in Spain. It's completely different. Um, I don't think I've ever been to a meeting hardly in Spain. I've had a lot of conversations, but it's, it's called lunchtime. And, you know, you have this great swathe of time in the middle of the day for lunch and everybody gets together and they're all, you know, patting each other on the back. And, hey, you know, Matthew, did you get that? Um, did you get that thing ordered? Have you got your questionnaire up and running? And we all sorted for the global forum, you know. And, and all of the meetings all happen over lunch and then people go back <coughs> to doing useful stuff. So I found in Spain are massively more productive wow. than, uh, than I ever was in an English or any other university. Really. Yeah, interesting. That, that's, that's, that's fascinating, Stephen, and there's so much in that in terms of organisational design and how we uh, sort of construct these learning environments. I mean, you've obviously uh, travelled extensively um, around the world and worked at a number of different um, institutions. So what are some of the commonalities that you think that you see with great education systems? I think um, I don't see many great education systems. I see I do see great education going on, but it's it's very rare, I think, to point to a whole system in a Singapore or something and say, wow, they've really got it right. I mean, they, they've done pretty well. And and I think um, I think the ones that, that really succeed always are the ones who are um, ambitious for the learners and, and who, who really understand that. You know, as I, as I understood about halfway through my career, I think that if you, um, if you challenge your learners to do something really surprising, mm. they'll astonish you right back at how well they do. And, uh, you know, I, I think if I think about the projects, and I've said this often in public, and I think about the projects I've been involved in over you know, more than 30 years of professor, you know, never mind before that. I think the projects that were the most successful were the ones that just frighten the life out and they'd wake up in the middle of the night and say, Oh, Stephen, what have you done now? You know, you, you just this is never going to work. You know, you mm. tried to put a computer lab into every superstore in the country, you know, get every child engaged in a project to whatever age they are. Never going to work, you know. And I'd literally wake up in a cold sweat. Those are the projects that were just ambitious enough to keep up with how good kids can be. And I think, mm. you know, when, when I look back on it and indeed look forward, you know, what I see is that the system is never ambitious enough yeah. for how good the kids might be. I think mean, parents will always tell you how good their kids can be and have been in the system yeah. usually under say we've seen a lovely example of that over here with, with um with COVID. And um we we had politicians as you did as everybody did really panicking about children not being learned. Oh my goodness. They're going to be the catch-up generation. They're going to <clears throat> they're going to be falling behind, you know. And yet, if I if I look back at the say Second World War, you know, the, the which I, I before my time just got clouded, but uh, but um, 
you know, had PhD students who were alive in, in that period. I understand that I was the one, you know, was a chief engineer at Ford's who was doing a PhD with him. His childhood during the war was terrifying. I mean, he was literally went to school every day with a bag packed and a label on his jacket <clears throat> with his name on because he was going to be evacuated. He didn't know when. So for a week, he'd turn up at school every day with his sister, hand in hand, his little baby sister, label on his jacket saying, Stan, I was a bag, but you will have one toy, you know, and a couple of other things. Sure enough, on the Friday that week, having the bus to take him home, took him to Wales, you know, the other side of, he lived in East London, he was in Wales for, I mean, over a year, you know, a huge amount of time. Never saw his parents, um, no telephone communication. He was, suddenly went from being the little boy to being the big boy, because his baby sister was, you know, he was kind of responsible for, you know, and then back he came and there were other kids who'd been, you know, hiding in the London Underground as the bombs dropped and disappearing down air raid shelters. They had had the most chaotic education program. And yet, you know, if you look back on the, um, the post-war period, you know, the, the, the people who were the heroes of the post-war period, you know, artistically or in engineering terms, Clive Sinclair just died a couple of weeks ago, you know, pretty much invented single-handed the home computer with his you know, amazing little Z80 processor powered spectrums and millions of people learned to program on the things. You know, he was a kid during that era. John Lennon was a kid during that era. Vivian Westbrook was a kid during that era. You know, they, they, you know, the big bright names of those post war years had the most chaotic um, education childhoods and the resilience they developed as a result was spectacular. So when we started surveying that. We created um, a certificate. It's at um, yeah, I've just typed it in the chat window for you, but it's it's at um, hebble.net slash golden. And we, we invited kids to say, tell us what you've been doing during lockdown. You know, but the government thinks you've been falling off the education train, but what have you actually been doing? You know, and and what we got back was spectacularly reaffirming. I mean. Uh, and a lot of those kids, you know, went on to to frame their certificates to be generated for them, um, you know, saying you are the golden generation. But there are three things that characterise what they were doing. Number one, it was depth, not breadth. You know, they decided they wanted to really get into something. Boy, did they get into it. Whether that was, you know, plumbing or sailing or astrophysics or they just got into it just playing with amazing depth and um and there was no so you know we're, we're right away there on the stage not age where you don't have to wait till you're 13 before you learn the next move in chess you know you can really do it now secondly they did it with others and the others were very rarely just their age you know, they did it with siblings they did it with grandparents they did it with people on lines of mixed age, stage not age. And, and lastly, of course, they did it connected with others who weren't there, you know, they mm. did it with, on the same line of long, longitude, on the same line of latitude. You know, they were global learners. And I think kids, when we took the education system away to kids, from kids, they fell to 
what education looks like in the future. They just fell there because you know learning had escaped the boxes we put it in. Yeah. And it was really interesting to see where it had gone. And well, it's pretty exciting over the Wow, that I mean that's that, that's fascinating because if you read um any of the news reports, not necessarily the academic journals, but the news reports about the impact of COVID and and uh, all of the the psychological damage that it's done to learning, it's it seems like you are a lot more optimistic than most. Um, would that be fair? Yeah, it would. But I but it's um, I think there's rich irony in the fact that people who spend all day every day telling children that they're going to be a, a lost generation, that they're going to be the catch up generation. Yeah. BBC did a feature program showing how many tens of thousands of pounds worse off the kids are going to be. If your message to kids every day is that, of course they're going to have linking um, depression and, and all sorts of mental health wobbles. Absolutely. But if you say to them, you will be the next golden generation, I don't mean that artificially, they will be. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, the, they're the ones, you know, they're the ones who are resilient enough to be able to cope. I mean, look at the unexpected things that we've had in the last couple of years, you know, COVID, Trump, um, climate disasters. Brexit, um, sorry to bring that up, but... Brexit, I mean, there's, every time you open a newspaper, there's another surprise, you know, it's um, like in Melbourne, even the footy team finally winning. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a constant surprise, you know. Um, and I think, you know, we want kids who are, wow, what, what, what are we going to do now? We want mm. kids who say that, whereas we, and, and I mean, one of the reasons I think, not to be harsh on politicians, they're all, you know, I'm sure their mums all love them and they all, they all <laughs> um, try to do their best, but most of them came through an education system where, you know, they did a big test and that kind or whatever, and the teachers were saying, and I hope there's no surprises on the exam paper, and they were turning the paper over saying, I hope I'm prepared for everything. And then we send it out into a world which is full of surprises and where they're prepared for nothing. And then of course our politicians have struggled to cope with mm. the challenge of COVID. You know, they they've said, quick, let's get back to normal. Let's get the kids back. Let's let's get kids catch up tutorials, you know. Yeah. Of course they've failed to appreciate the importance of resilience yeah. and ingenuity because they haven't got it themselves. And that's not their fault. And do you think, um, Stephen, so do you think that we are doing an adequate job of preparing young people for the future? And also my follow-up question is, um, why is it so hard to change? I know we're talking in general terms here, but why is change so difficult when it comes to education systems? Um, because my argument would be if we know where we're going and it's not the right destination, why don't we do something about it? But is that easier said than done? Well, it's really hard, isn't it? And people, <clears throat> you know, people can have a sort of duality in their heads, you know. That, I mean, many people knew that smoking killed, but they carried on smoking, you know. So mm. and plenty of people, you know, when we brought out seatbelts, there were people running around saying, oh, I'm never going to wear a seatbelt. I won't be able to get out of my car if it catches fire. I mean, all sorts of, of reasons why people ignored the science, you know. Um, but eventually we get that. I mean, you look at health, they used to bleed people for health. They would you know, cut you and bleed you to let out the bad humours you know, that were um, supposedly making you ill. If you look at a barber, a barber's shop, you know, a hairdresser's, there's a red and white striped pole outside that represents the blood 
and the bandages because the barbers were bleeding because they had the sharp knives, you know. But even after we realized that hygiene was pretty important and bleeding wasn't really very helpful, mm. you know, they kept on bleeding people for 50 or 60 years. Um, you know, so it's quite hard for people to let go of what they think they know this is the right way to do it. Mm. And you see this with the gap between parents and schools, you know, parents saying, but, we, but we've always taught multiplication tables. You know, I don't care about your, your understanding. You just need to know that eight eights are 64 and you'll be, you'll be in clover, you know. And the schools are saying, no, no, they, they really need to understand their kind of their, their, their bases and their base tens and so on. Otherwise, they're never going to go on. But, so there's always been, you know, a tension between what we thought we knew and what we now knew. Mm. And I don't think that's any different now. I think what we've got are three groups of schools or educational institutions, I'd certainly count universities. You've got the group who are the kind of barbers, really, the, the bleeders, you know, who are saying, well, let's just get back to normal, you know. That's, uh, and actually, when COVID came along, you know, with a rise smile, the first thing they did was put all the desks back in rows and they said, oh, this is very important because, yeah, you know, it's a complete and utter tosh, you know, there was, Nothing that suggests, you know, we, we run the seminars here on, on the, you know, the physics of, uh, of aerosol contamination. And I'll tell you for nothing, if kids are all sitting in those facing the same way and the ones at the back are speaking up, you know, there's a draft, there's a current running through the room. It's far more dangerous than if they're sitting in little groups and clusters. So they're kind of the, those, those schools will, will grab anything to get back to what they think is safe. And they're not malicious, they're just wrong. Um, then there's a group who I think are saying, and, and probably Australia has more of these schools than many countries, very lucky, I think. They're saying, okay, well, this is what we're doing. How can we do it better? You know, how can we improve the furniture, the physical environment, the pedagogy, the, the you know, but they haven't kind of gone beyond that. They've, they've said, you know, how can we finesse the school we've already got? And, and, you know, and do a really good job. And that's a really important group of people. But then there's another lock over here, which is actually what might it look like? Yeah. And if you think about, um, you know, the, the um, smartphone was invented in, well, some debate in the literature, but 1995 would be the first time I had my hand on what I'd call a smartphone, you know. And it wasn't until I know, 2009, was it? I don't know, when Steve Jobs leaps up on the stage and, and memorably says, I've got three things to announce. I've been an inventor. You know, we finally got an iPod with a full screen. You know, right? And then he says, and we're going to use that pocket small screen um, to produce something which allows you to surf the internet properly. No more WAP, you know, and all those other nonsensical attempts to put the World Wide Web in your phone, you know, it's going to be a proper browser and we're going to build a better phone. By the way, it's all the same device, you know. Mm. And, um, but immediately, you know, Steve Ballmer, I remember from Microsoft, said that he'll be lucky to get 1% of the market for that. You know, it's complete nonsense. Yeah. And there were people walking around for 10 years with Blackberry saying, it's really important to have a full keyboard. You know, you can't, do this without a proper keyboard, you know. It was like it was obvious that they were wrong. 
you know, they're thinking about the team, a little tiny window. The thing was almost impossible to use. And, yeah. you know, the IT department in their company said, you must have this. Because it's, you know, and so they, they kind of said, but in the schools, where's the iPhone? If you sort of mean, where's somebody coming along and saying, never mind what you've been doing, this is what it might look like. Yeah. And I think we're really short of those blue sky yeah. instances. And the nearest thing you've got in um, New South Wales will be in Linfield Learning Village, which I had a pleasure to be part of, you know. Yeah. It's kind of mixed age, stage um, age, based, you know. I have been there a number of, uh, not a number of times, I've been there a few times, and it, it's incredibly inspiring because it it shows that that the possibility, and I think one of the things that, that seems particularly challenging uh, about change is the messiness, and I know that as uh, educators, we, um, sorry, as educators, it's easy to regulate and to standardise because it's easier to control. Um, uh, but did you, uh, so would you mind talking a little bit about how do we as educators, uh, educators embrace that messiness and how do we make sure that we are creating learning environments that um, not only can the students ask questions, but also we can put our hands up as teachers and say, hey, let's try this. How do we, how do we innovate? Sorry, that's a very broad question. Well, teachers are really good at that. And, and, and um, you know, I think every teacher will tell you, I mean, here it's a really windy day today and the school is a different place when it's windy absolutely when it's calm you know just huge difference and unless you talk you really don't appreciate that you know or if uh you know a kid falls off a, a motorbike and has a you know a, a, a horrendous accident you know the whole school is a different place for a, you know, a week a month a term if they die you know. and then you know we all know that uh you know kids have different experiences you're sitting there writing on your whiteboard and, and um, you know Joanne comes in a bit late and she's never late you know and you just say Joanne you're a bit late just get yourself sat down this stuff over here is going to be important and you put a little star and a J on the board for her you know you know I mean we 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 personalize all the time mm. what we're doing and yet as we move up the system um you know that, that personalization seems to disappear and yeah. you know we end up with a model of a you know, like a, a national curriculum that's incredibly boxed in, incredibly constrained. Mm. I mean, you used to have this wonderful, because, because the states all competed a little with each other. I remember when the multimedia came along in the end of the 80s, you know, kind of Western Australia with UWA and Curtin and Edith Coward, and really cool stuff in multimedia. And, um, you know, CD-ROMs coming out, there it is, you know. And then they sort of pass the baton over, put us enough change, you know. And, uh, you know, somebody else, maybe Victoria, picked up the baton, you know, and then, um, you know, and then, wow, look at the Lutherans up in Queensland, you know. And so, you know, they had, you had that sort of ability to, oh, go take a little rest. So very much like a peloton in a cycle race, you know. Yeah. So is the minute you go to a national model with a national curriculum, you know, what you've said to everybody in the peloton is, well, you've just, you've just got to keep your order, just you can't take it in turns you know, yeah. to lead. The whole peloton slows down, you know, so, yeah. you know, but but, but what, what the bottom end of that granularity is, of course, children. Yeah. And, you know, with the, I think without exception in in my career, you know, that, that sense of learner-led being the most rapid speed to get to where you want to go. Yeah. Not not co-constructing, properly learn and led, properly saying to the kids, I don't care what your opinion is, 
I don't want to know that. I want to know what your research is. You know, you find out what other schools are doing. Come back and talk to me about it. Let's see what might work here. You know, we're a unique community. We're unique kids. You're actually unique here. Last year, a lot of the right old bunch. You know, I mean, what's going to work for you? Yeah, uh, is a really interesting way to move forward. And and we just don't do that enough. Yeah. But you know, the impact of technology is we will. Yeah. You know, technology gives us personalization. Look at what he's doing to health. Yeah. You know, there was a time in health I turned up to the doctor and he sort of tested blood pressure or whatever. I've got COVID at the moment, so I'm a bit croaky. I really am not at all well at this point. So sorry for the croaky voice, but you know, I turned up to the doctor and he told me what was wrong with me. I don't need to talk anymore. You know, I can I've got data, I've got internet of things, devices, I've got Google, I've got academic papers, you know, I am my own diagnosis. And I go to the, the doc beyond that for remediation. You know, what, okay, I know what's wrong. How are you going to fix it? You know, that's, you know, and suddenly an Apple are saying, yeah, we're actually a health company. We're going to be with our, with our watches. We're going to be um, selling healthy living to people mm. beyond everything else we do. You know? So same is true of education. You know, but, you know, again, let me give you an example. Um, we've been measuring the physical environment in urban spaces. Uh, we're interested in the CO2, the TVOCs, those volatile organic compounds, the PM 2.5, the sooty material that comes to the door from the diesel cars. We're interested in humidity and temperature and sound, particularly perhaps light levels. And when we go into an exam room, we find incredible levels of, of unfairness. You know, the kids in the dark, hot, gloomy corner are going to do 5% worse than the kids in the light, hairy cool corner. So we have this myth of a level playing field of the exams, but the minute you dish out a seating plan, some of the kids are being treated unfairly. Well, at the moment, kids are tolerating that. But the minute their watch or their phone says to them, hang on a minute, you know, you go home to your dad, and he says, oh, that was the exam. And he'll say, well, I, did, you know, I could barely stay awake, Dad. Look at the scene, two levels of my, my side of the room, you know. Oh, my Lord, three and a half thousand parts per million, you know. And the dad's on the phone to the school and the exam board saying, I demand a you know, restitution of my son's performance because he was gassed by his own emissions in the corner and other kids weren't, you know. But the minute the kids have got the data, we can't pretend anymore that the ubiquitous uniformity is other than unfair. Yeah. And everything changes at that point. So I'm really optimistic. Great. Yeah. It um I mean I, I it's really inspiring to hear um uh, to hear you talk with such optimism. It's really wonderful because um it, it's obviously really very important conversations to be having and, and what a hopefully what a what a turning point we have in education at the moment with with this ongoing global pandemic it, it's a really it's a really fascinating time i mean uh, your body of work uh, Stephen, is just um extraordinary and there's so much uh, we could talk for hours about the work that you're doing um but i also want to be respectful of your time i mean you've, you've been uh, described by uh, microsoft as europe's leading online education expert and also one of the most influential academics of recent years in the field of technology and education, which is 
it's not bad for a bio. I think that, that's that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're nice. They're nice things, and they're yeah. And people are very generous with their with their warm words, and and um, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever done a project on my own though. So all the projects yeah. have always been with kids and teachers and parents. And, I'm and just really curious. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sorry to cut you off. There is a little bit of a delay, so my apologies if I cut you off. I'm just curious, um, Stephen, how do you uh, define the term technology? Um, and um, what are some of the uh, the trends that you see at the moment, especially coming back to our conversation about what's happening globally with COVID? So its simplest form, what is technology and why has it? Uh, why is it so important? Well, it's, I mean, it's a better way it's a profound question. We could do a PhD on that, but the, you know, it obviously it's the um, devices and tools, particularly tools that we use to to allow us to do things we couldn't previously do, and that's everything from electricity and the fountain pen through to um, uh, you know, nano, nano robots scampering around our bloodstream. You know, it's all. Um, but I think if we look at the general picture of it. There's a very clear um, narrative. When we first get technologies of whatever sort, what we try and do is to finesse what we were already doing. So I remember when we first look up here, when we first brought out the CD ROM, you know, <laughs> this was, I don't know what date, well, was, how was this? 1989, this is a set of CD ROM tools for multimedia. <laughs> um, and we produced these things with a huge amount of stuff. And I remember having um, phone, I had a phone call from the Encyclopedia Britannica, who I'm sure are lovely people, but they, they phoned up and shouted down the phone. I don't like people shouting. They shouted because we were selling these CDs for, you know, five pound a time. And they'd said, you know, we've calculated the amount of content on a CD box. And if you sell it for anything less than about 750 pounds, you're destroying the market for content. And I was trying to say to them, they're going to give these away in magazines soon. They came to be free, you know. They would they would be in cross with me because I'm selling them for five quid. You know, it's, it's happened, move on, you know. And they, they really didn't, didn't get it because what they thought was, we'll take our encyclopedia and put it on a CD roll. And that's the end of that. Um, what then happens is the technology gets better, and we say to ourselves, well, um, never mind what can we do that we couldn't do very well before. The question now is, what would we like to do? And that's a very different question. Yeah. So a lot of technology and education has been about, well, how can we, you know, they can do creative writing better, or how can we, how can we approach our understanding of geometric and arithmetic progression in a spreadsheet? Because mm. I believe the numbers are what you can do. And what we learned, I think, from the early days onwards, was that once you say, "Well, what would I like to do?" That's the point when people take risks with their learning. Yeah, yeah. So we go from a model of finessing. To a model of taking risks with the learning. And when I used to run Ultra Lab, it was a wonderful lab. I, mean, I, don't know how we got, I don't know how we got away with running it for 21 years, but <laughs> blue sky, massive funding, you know, just the time of our lives, really. 
we had a thing called Ultralabs Law, which is an internal law to ourselves or by other people quoting that, which, which is basically that in the space between denial and legislation is the space for subversion, really, for opportunity for change. Yeah. So along comes a technology, TikTok, you know, and people say TikTok will never have anything to do with education. It's not, you know, it's this is you know, TikTok is full of um, you know divorced um, mid mid career women, you know, trying to seduce partners or whatever. But then you realise that actually TikTok's got quite a lot of um, quite interesting stuff. You know, some of the best physics teaching in your life is going on in there. Looking at somebody doing a well-being thing for students, she's got twenty-three million followers. You know, so sooner or later, you know, somebody will come along and say, "Right, TikTok is an important part of the Australian curriculum. We'll have a TikTok module." You know, and, the, and then it's over. You know, <laughs> first of all, they say it's never going to happen, and eventually they kind of legislate it's going to happen in this way. And in that space, that's our space for changing opportunity. And the trick with all this is to keep moving. Don't, don't kind of nail your colours to the CD-ROM. <laughs> just you know, nail your colours to the learners and yeah. just keep them. And that's a very big space. It takes a long time for people to stop denying that there could never be a place for the calculator in the classroom. Oh, well, now there is, but you have to have the Casio effects one, two, three, four, and no other calculator will do. You can't have reverse Polish logic calculators because they give you the right answer, but in the wrong way, you know. There's a, there's a space between that, that denial and that legislation, and there's a sweet spot for change. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting, Stephen, uh, your uh, uh, description of um, Encyclopedia Britannica has got me thinking. Uh, many years ago, I was uh, working in a school and we were having this big um, conversation and this big moral dilemma of if we should throw out the entire collection of Encyclopedia Britannicas that we had um, because it was taking up space. And uh, my argument, which wasn't particularly popular, uh, was that um, the, um, the information was already out of date. And so what's the point? And you can get everything this on, uh, on, uh, on the internet. So it's really interesting, isn't it? I think quite often we hold on to things for um, a sentimental value when we should really let it go. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I have to declare myself to be a bit of a softy in that respect. I mean, I, the boat I sail was built in 1907 and they hadn't even invented the motor car here. So people were going around the town on, on horseback, you know, we still sail it in a very traditional way. We don't have winches or, you know, computers on board or anything. And, you know, I like that a lot and it's a lot of fun. You know, but at the same time, I'm not riding around the village on a horse. You know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a nice artifact to have. Uh, you know, it's nice to have a silver teaspoon that's, you know, Georgian or whatever, you know, it's, um, but, we, but we shouldn't lock our lives into that moment. Yeah. and not move forward. That's the key thing, really. And, and of course, the, the trouble was, those encyclopedias, they weren't just valuable, they signified something. You know, if you went to visit a friend and they had a row of encyclopedias in their front room, this was a pretty classy family. You know, somebody had spent hundreds of dollars on you know, equipping the house with knowledge. And um, you know, if you threw them away and just put in paperbacks of 
Fifty Shades or whatever, you know, that sort of that, you know, the semiotics of that family were broken, you know. So books, as I was saying earlier, the books do more than just contain what's in them, you know, there's more to them than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, uh, Stephen, and, and there is uh, there is so much of your work uh, that I would love to cover, um, but I and maybe we'll have to organise a uh, a round two because I, I wanted to obviously talk about some of your incredible work uh, with the LP plus uh, your role as chairman uh, in terms of um, uh, Chinese language learning and your work obviously with the Inclusion Trust. So there's so much uh, for us to discover, but. Uh, to talk about, but I, I'm just incredibly grateful, uh, Stephen, that you would take the time and talk to me today. Um, it's really wonderful to um, to see someone who is a an agent for change and also incredibly optimistic about the direction and thing in, in which things are, are headed. So, uh, thank you for, um, for, like I said, for taking the time uh, to talk with me today. Um, and and just um, as we uh, wrap up, where can people find out more about you? And uh, where can people stay in touch with your amazing work? Because it is, it is immense. Yeah, I mean, I have the world's most chaotic website because I tend to just post things as we're doing them. I, I, somebody told me the other day that the list of current projects is about seven years out of date, so I didn't need to update that a bit. But um, heppel.net, H-E-P-P-E-L-L, heppel.net is about 25 million people on that server last year. So a huge, huge number of people go there and it's not the world's best indexing but there is a search thing on the front you know so if you wanted to type in you know, exclusion or shoeless learning or you know, we do a we're doing a lot of stuff on on brain food you know what should you eat what should you eat to get your brain as good as it can be you know and if you want to look at any of those things just just use the search engine to find your way around and we probably should do another session if, if people are interested in this one let's absolutely maybe come back and let's let's pick you know my five favorite projects or something we'll say a little about what we learned from absolutely i enjoy that a lot definitely and, and Stephen, your your work like i said is is so immense and um it would be a huge privilege to get to chat to you at another point and and um hear some of your and really do a bit of a deep dive into some of the things that you're working on but um uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I hope that you uh, start to feel better soon. Um, and my, my, my thoughts are with you. So thank you for uh, talking to me, even though you're a bit croaky. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.